From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Researchers at Mayo Clinic are developing a screening test for a problem with the heart by using artificial intelligence and an electrocardiogram, or EKG. On today's program, we'll learn more from the research team. Then we'll hear from a patient who, using her husband's Apple Watch, discovered a problem with her heart rhythm. Also, a new group of drugs aimed at preventing migraines. And ADHD in adults. That's this week's program. Up next. Tracy, some 5 million people in the U.S. have congestive heart failure. Their heart is just too weak to pump enough blood. Now, that usually doesn't happen all of a sudden, and there are ways to predict that it will or that it may happen, but they're expensive and they're not always readily available. But now, by combining artificial intelligence with a simple EKG, Mayo Clinic doctors have found a quick, inexpensive way to do it. A cheaper way to discover that there's a problem with the pump, the pump being your heart. Coming up, we'll hear from two members of the research team about the new technique. And later on in this segment, we'll talk with a woman from Scottsdale, Arizona, who discovered that her heart was in atrial fibrillation when she tried on her husband's new Apple Watch. What a great story. Joining us in studio to tell us about combining AI with EKG to detect early heart failure is Dr. Paul Friedman, chair of the Midwest Department of Cardiovascular Medicine and Mayo Clinic cardiologist, Dr. Peter Noseworthy. Gentlemen, welcome both of you to the program. Thank you. Great to be here. Now, before we start, I want to know what that is hanging around your neck. Uh, (laughs) Our listeners obviously can't see it, but uh, it looks like you've got a speaker on the end of your stethoscope. Well, this is a digital stethoscope, and it has two metal plates on either end of the listening piece. So in addition to digitally recording the sounds that I would listen to, it also records an ECG simultaneously. So by putting the stethoscope on the chest, we get ECG as well as heart sounds. The beauty of that is they're digital, so that we can apply artificial intelligence to that. So any practitioner of any specialty can benefit from these algorithms and essentially have an expert cardiologist in his or her pocket to say, hey, there may be a problem here. Let's check Tracy's heart. (laughs) (laughs) We don't have time for that. (laughs) All right, so now so that we can better understand this this new technique, if one of you would first explain congestive heart failure and also what is meant by left ventricular dysfunction. Great, well, congestive heart failure is a weakening of the heart muscle and it typically results in shortness of breath or inability to exercise. Many people are very bothered by congestive heart failure, but a small portion of the population may have weakening of the heart muscle that they're not yet aware of. And if we could pick that up early, then we can intervene with medications or devices to prevent it from progressing and to try to prevent people from having some of the adverse effects that are associated with heart failure. So that's our goal, finding the people who may not even know yet that they have a weak heart muscle. Why is it hard to diagnose? It would seem that it would be easy to figure out. Well, it's easy when it's obvious, but it's harder when when you're doing okay. And we use typically use something called an echocardiogram, similar to an ultrasound that's used to look at a baby, for instance. And there you can look at the actual muscle of the heart in action and see how it's working. But you have to have a reason to do that test, and you have to have about an hour, and it costs a fair amount of money, and it's not a practical screening test Um, at the level of the general population. So you have come up with something new, something different, and tell us about that. 
So um, what we did was we used an, a neural network to empower the ECG, to make it a more powerful test so that the ubiquitous, inexpensive, widely available, 10-second, non-invasive ECG can screen to see whether or not a weak heart pump is present and that you may then benefit for an echocardiogram. And the way it worked is as follows. A neural network requires a big amount of data to be trained on. And then once it's trained, it can run on a smartphone or on a stethoscope or something small. And at Mayo Clinic, fortunately, we have big amounts of digital data. So we took roughly 50,000 uh, data points, that is ECGs in people who also had echocardiograms, and we would feed the ECG into the network and say this person's ejection fraction, which is a measure of heart pump strength, is 50%, which is normal. This one is 35%. After you do that about 50,000 times, then, which you know, for the computer may, may take an hour or two, um, the network learns. It learns from the data. The data actually train the mathematical equations in this nonlinear way. So now you have a network that you can give it any ECG and say, is a weak heart pump present, yes or no? So much the way a child learns, you hold up a fruit and say, this is an apple. And they'll say, oh, okay, after a time they learn it's firm, has a stem. Hold up another one, this is an orange, pitted, different color. Sort of the same concept. But with 50,000 ECGs, you can pick up a lot of patterns, subtle things that humans may not appreciate. It's hidden in plain sight. And so let me tell you how it performed. Um, we measure how good a test is by the area under the curve. A perfect test would be a one. If it says you've got the condition, you have it. If it says you don't, you don't. If you flip a coin, it's a 50-50, right? So it's a 0.5. For medical tests, such as a pap smear, it's about a 0.7. A treadmill test is a 0.85. This test, the ability of an AI algorithm reading an ECG to tell you if you have a weak heart pump is a 0.93 a very powerful test. And Incredible. to give you a sense of just how powerful it is, we then said maybe if we tell the computer if the person who's tested is, is a man or a woman, it'll work even better because we know that gender and age affect heart disease. We tried it. It made no difference. And then we said maybe the computer already knows if you're a man or a woman from the <laughs> ECG. And guess what? It performed phenomenally. Area under the curve for determining gender is 0.97. In other words, a computer <laughs> reading an ECG is better at determining someone's gender than you or I would be just walking down the street looking at somebody, statistically speaking. A female heart or yeah. a male heart. That's right. Interesting. Poetic, isn't it? Yeah. So, <laughs> well, but, but hold on. What's the difference? I mean, what's well, the difference between a female heart and a male heart? In a medical sense, uh, as opposed to a philosophical or poetic sense, right. Right. Um, we don't know. And I say we don't know because the tool is a black box. It learns, but what it's looking at is not known. And that's true of all neural networks. So, so huh. everybody who has an EKG now at the Mayo Clinic would, would get this additional uh, artificial intelligence with it and would tell them whether or not their heart is beginning to weaken? So Peter runs our ECG lab. Maybe you want to talk about how we're implementing it. Yeah, we're just now starting to figure out how to apply this to practice. And we are building the infrastructure to allow us to run the algorithm on all the ECGs that we obtain in a given year. We do 250,000 ECGs nearly every year. Now, no cardiologist or doctor or internist has ordered an ECG to look for a low ejection fraction, just like they wouldn't order it to tell if their patient is a man or a woman. So it requires a bit of a change in the way we approach this test, which is not intended as a screen for low ejection fraction. But we're going to be rolling it out in a randomized trial, essentially, within our primary care practice, starting to give the results to the doctors and see how they make sense of it, whether they order follow-up echoes, 
what the diagnostic yield is, and hopefully we start to prove that we're able to detect uh, disease earlier and make a difference for some of our patients. So low ejection fraction means that the heart is not pumping as well as it could. Correct. And you, it used to be that in order to figure that out, you needed an echocardiogram, which right. required an hour, fairly expensive. Th and you can do the same thing now by using artificial intelligence and combining that with an EKG. Right, and of course we'd want a confirmatory test. If we ran this, we took off Dr. Friedman's stethoscope and handed it to you and it was a positive screen, uh, we wouldn't leave it at that. We would want to take a good look at your heart with an echo and figure out exactly what's going on. But as an initial first pass, it's really exciting for us. And, and why is it important to know that? Well, the key point is that seven million Americans have a weak heart pump and don't know about it. Meaning, in, in the people where it's more overt, where it's already progressed to symptoms, they know. But if you have this condition and don't know about it, you have an increased risk of developing symptoms, an increased risk of dying. And there are more than five um, professional society publications saying, here are medications that we know lower the risk of getting symptoms, strengthen your heart pump, make you live longer. So the goal is to prevent bad things from happening to people by detecting them early. So rather than the old paradigm, I feel sick, I go to the doctor, test her ordered, we can do a screening test that can be run ultimately when it's done even at home, you know, from a smartphone-based ECG, a watch-based ECG, something else. Now, we haven't extensively tested it that way, but we are in the process of doing that. But the goal is detect disease early, stop it from being bad, and, and uh, help people in the process. Who should have this test? Everyone <laughs> or anyone who's just at risk of congestive heart failure? So um, I would say that any, our goal is to vet it because um, vet it in an actual practice setting as uh, Peter was mentioning it. And then in that context, we would envision rolling it out so that ultimately anyone getting a medically ordered 12 lead ECG would have the test as a starting point. And in the future, then we'd have to see what groups it may make sense in. It, absolutely fantastic. Wow. I think these guys are pretty smart. I changed my mind. I do want to use that stethoscope on me. Be careful what you ask for. I can arrange for it. <laughs> Tracy, when I was in Scottsdale recently, I was talking with a friend, and she is a, a patient at Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and she told me that recently her husband got a new Apple Watch, and she said, let me try that on. And she did an EKG on herself, and it said she had atrial fibrillation. Oh so she ended up going to the emergency room, and she's on the phone with us. Mary Schoenbeck, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Shives. Nice to be with you. <laughs> Tell us the story. I, I got the first part right, didn't I? Yes, you did. I did wear my husband's Apple Watch. He recently had gotten a Series 4. And the reason was I, I was feeling a little... Off, I guess. Great medical term, I know. But I, I didn't have any pain. I had no shortness of breath, no flu symptoms. But something was telling me something was just a little different with my body. And I did have a few heart palpitations. In hindsight, I realized I had that. But I attributed that to I exercise most days. So I thought, well, I'm getting older. And, mm -hmm. and um, it's probably exercising in that. And to my surprise, it said AFib. I'll be honest, I, I really didn't know what AFib was. but um, And then this coincided with my annual exam and getting blood work done, and that showed that some of my, my numbers were off on my blood work, and that led to a phone call with my Mayo uh, PA and nurse. And to my surprise, they did say, you need to get to the ER. I attribute 
the Series 4 Apple Watch to bringing to my attention what my body was telling me and and also being able to communicate that with Mayo. I honestly don't think I would have mentioned anything about my heart or, you know, feeling off is really not too medical. So I am very thankful that, and I now have a Series 4 Apple Watch myself. <laughs> You're going to get a lot more after this interview airs. <laughs> I have a feeling, but I have I have told the story just because I, I really wasn't educated in this, and not feeling sick was really the key for me. I didn't think anything was really wrong other than just minor symptoms. Yeah, if you show up in the emergency room saying, I feel a little off, you're going to sit there a while. <laughs> right. Well, the first thing they did was an EKG. So that that did say, yep, you you are. I had the rapid heart rate. I had all, all the signs. Well, they ultimately figured out the cause of your fibrillation, didn't they? They did. And it all is attributed to my thyroid. It always is. Hyperthyroidism, <laughs> which I had no idea I had either. And part of that was when my blood work came back, my lab results, it showed that. So Mayo was very quick in saying, okay, the AFib plus my lab work, they said, you go to the ER, you may be in thyroid storm, which I didn't realize either. So it it all played out very well for me. And I'm very thankful. So they got the thyroid problem fixed and you're now in normal sinus rhythm. Yes. Okay. And I check that once in a while, Dr. Scheib. <laughs> I might every day. <laughs> as well as well as my, I guess, is the BPM, my heart rate. Which, it, there's really two features on that Apple Watch that we, we check periodically. Yeah, pretty interesting story. So, uh, Dr. Friedman, Dr. Noseworthy, uh, I think there are some 6 million people in this country who have atrial fibrillation. Um, Why is it a a concern, and is it important that people know whether or not they have it? Exactly. It's a common uh, condition, and it increases your risk of stroke, which is the major uh, issue that we're trying to prevent with atrial fibrillation. So if we can diagnose atrial fibrillation, we can treat it, usually with a blood thinner and anybody who has any other risk factors for stroke. And it's not uncommon that a first presentation of atrial fibrillation is at the time of a stroke, or many times people have a stroke, you have no idea, there's no harbinger whatsoever. It ends up being about 85% of people who have atrial fibrillation because atrial fibrillation itself tracks with other risk factors. But there are people who are young and otherwise healthy who may have atrial fibrillation. So detecting atrial fibrillation early is key. How many people end up with atrial fibrillation because of a thyroid? Is that common? It's one of the presenting uh, symptoms of hyperthyroidism. Not a terribly common one, but we always look for it. If you have atrial fibrillation, your doctor will definitely check your thyroid function at least once. But Mary's story, I think, brings out a few points. And Mary, I want to thank you for sharing it with everyone. Because first of all, while heart disease sometimes will knock you off your feet, sometimes it can be subtle. And you said, you know, I don't feel right, and that's not a medical term but in reality you know that that's your body was adjusting well but picking that up early allows treatment for the underlying disorder if one is present in your case the high thyroid and it looks for screening if there's another potential disorder and it can uh, allow for the use of medication short or long term to prevent stroke so i think it's it's an important point and i think as as we go forward there'll be more and more of these opportunities to because it's far better to detect it take medication than something else The second point Mary made, which was a little more subtle but worth mentioning, is that there's two things that the watch and most sensors are giving her. One is the heart rate. The heart rate is measured by using a light on the back. It's called a PPG. 
And that can sometimes give you warnings, but it can often also give false alarms. And so a lot of people are calling the doctors that said my heart rate was 200, and it may or may not be. But the newer devices that actually record an ECG that we can look at and review, that's powerful because then it can be reviewed by a physician who can look at it and say, oh yes, this actually is atrial fibrillation and needs treatment. Oh, what's the future hold? We're just at the tip of the iceberg, aren't we? We are. There are a long list of conditions that I think will be amenable because our bodies are giving off these invisible signals all the time. And the more we can pick them up, I mean, it, just think about this. Before someone has a heart attack, they've had atherosclerosis or narrowing of the arteries for 10 to 20 years. And so the more we can pick up the body's invisible signals and intervene sooner, the more we can prevent bad things from happening. And, and we're just on the beginning cusp of this. I think the science and the technology is going to lurch well ahead of the regulatory issues around these that will be actually require significant addressing because there are no state boundaries when it relates to health, but there are in terms of practice licenses and things like that. Boy, the future is nothing less than exciting, is it? <laughs> For sure. All right, an EKG with artificial intelligence can now detect previously hidden heart disease and holds great promise for saving lives and improving health. And we talked about wearable technology showing real promise and likely one day we'll be able to prevent disease before it strikes. Our thanks to Mary Schoenbeck from Scottsdale, Arizona, and for sharing her story, and to Mayo Clinic Heart Specialist, Dr. Paul Friedman, Dr. Peter Noseworthy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, ADHD in adults. Well, hopefully, Tracy, you've never had a migraine headache. I think maybe one you or have. two, yes. Uh, recently? No, I got divorced. With- <laughs> Sorry. Well, I- I'm glad that worked for you. Maybe you don't listen to need to listen that closely to today's program, ago. but you should anyway. Right, right, right. One thing about it is you are not alone. The National Headache Foundation estimates that nearly 12% of the population have migraine headaches. That's nearly 40 million people. And women, like you, are mm. about three times more likely to have migraines than are men. Migraine headaches can cause significant pain for hours, even days, and they can be so severe that they're they're disabling. There's a long list of drugs that may help to treat a migraine once it occurs or reduce the chances of having one. But most of these drugs were designed to treat other problems like depression, seizures, or heart disease with a side benefit sometimes of also helping migraines. All that is about to change. We're finally seeing treatments devised specifically to prevent migraines. Let's talk with a Mayo Clinic expert. With us today is neurologist and division chair of neurology education at Mayo Clinic, Dr. Chris Bass. Welcome to the program, Dr. Bass. It's nice to meet you. Thank you. Nice to meet you too. Dr. Bass, thanks for being here. I would bet that there are a lot of people in this country that are glad to hear that finally there are some drugs that are designed to actually prevent migraine headaches, specifically prevent migraine headaches. Yeah. So this is an exciting development. Um, there was a preventive many, many years ago called methasergide that was developed based on the pathophysiology of migraine. Unfortunately, it had severe side effects, and so it's no longer available. So this development is really nice. Like you said, all the prior preventives, they kind of were chosen in this fashion. Um, they, a patient with migraine and, let's say, high blood pressure would be on a medicine like a beta blocker. The patient would report to their doctor, you know, my blood pressure is better, but boy, my migraines are better. Hmm. So then the drug company that would make the beta blocker would say, well, let's study that in migraine patients who don't have high blood pressure. 
And they would study them versus like a sugar pill, a placebo. And if it showed a response, then it would become part of a practice. So it's really an exciting time because I think finally patients um, uh, have a feeling that we're investigating the underlying pathophysiology or cause of their migraine and that this treatment is specific you know, for their underlying uh, etiology or cause of their migraines. What took so long to get here? Well, it's interesting. This... You know, this class of drugs, uh, it was based on research done where they find uh, elevated levels of, in the blood of, uh, of a molecule called calcitonin gene-related peptide, CGRP, and that's been known since the 80s. So when I did my headache fellowship, I did it in England with one of the folks who first did research on this topic. So they knew about this, but it just took a long time. First, they attacked that molecule with a pill, and they're still doing that. But unfortunately, the first round of drugs had liver toxicity as a side effect. So, you know, that didn't go very far. So then what's happened over time as they try to create medications that um, basically work against CGRP, uh, they found the current class, which is basically a special antibody they've created against either CGRP, which is a molecule. So it's kind of like the key uh, or there's antibodies against uh, the CGRP receptor where the molecule works, and that's kind of like the lock. So you can have antibodies against either CGRP itself, so antibodies against the key or anti- one antibody commercially available against the lock. So these, uh, what you've figured out is that this CGRP, which is, did you say is a protein or a peptide? Yeah, it's a peptide, yeah. And, and that's what triggers a migraine? It's interesting. Uh, you know, it, CGRP is involved in numerous systems in the brain, peripheral nervous system, heart, skin, pancreas, kind of all over the body. But what they, you know, the basic research started off by saying, we're going to measure in the blood what happens to CGRP when you have a migraine, it goes up. When the migraine is treated, let's say with a medicine like sumatriptan or imitrex, it goes down. So then they said, well, you know, maybe we should try to manipulate that system since it's a marker of the migraine itself. So that's kind of where they decided to try to find different medicines that would affect that specific mechanism. Is it CGRP that makes a difference if it's a migraine or just a regular headache? Yeah, it's interesting. So not necessarily. Mm-hmm. So CGRP is elevated in other kinds of headache, like cluster headache. Um, it seems to be a marker of uh, to feel pain. Your trigeminal nerve, which you know controls sensation from your face and kind of your forehead, uh, needs to be activated in some way. So uh, CGRP is released into the blood when that trigeminal nerve is activated. So I see lots of patients with cluster headache and migraine. It is not a clinically useful test right now, mm-hmm. uh, but it is uh, when they measure it, they find that. So. Um, yeah, it's a very exciting time. So these drugs, uh, how many are available uh, and are some more effective than others? And are they FDA approved? So it's interesting. So there are three FDA approved uh, CGRP monoclonal antibodies now. So one of them is against the receptor. That one's called arenumab or amovig. Uh, two of them are against the, the uh, key or the molecule itself. So that's afremenezumab, which is a Jovi and galkinezumab, which is mgality. So there are three of them commercially available. One was approved in May 2018 or so, and the other was later in September. 
There's another one that will be coming online, I suspect. I mean, I, I don't work for the FDA, but um, it'll probably be coming out in this year, most likely. That one's given intravenously, so that will have its own set of problems. And the other one's given orally? The others are given by uh, shots, uh, under-the-skin injections, and they're either given monthly, which is the most common treatment, or quarterly. So they have a very long... Um, they last a long time in your body. So that's one of the benefits as compared to typical uh, preventive medicine. So in migraine, there's sort of, everybody has to have something to take when you get a migraine. That's called acute treatment, but you also need a preventive treatment if your headaches are quite frequent, let's say a couple times a week. Then the preventive, you know, the benefits start to, uh, start to outweigh the risks. So, and, um, so it's really nice, you know, to take one injection a month versus a pill and some of my preventives you have to take two three times a day are there Um, any side effects yeah so (laughs) you know every 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 treatment has a little bit of poison in it right so the it it's remarkable though with this class of drugs that they work about as well as the quote-unquote old preventives you know but half of the people have a 50 percent reduction in how frequent they have migraines but they have pretty markedly fewer side effects. And, you know, some of them, like with arenumab, some people get a little constipation. Uh, people can get, because these are injections, they can get some injection site reactions, like in your thigh or your arm where you inject them. But, you know, I, sometimes I drug, a, uh, I, uh, I sort of uh, evaluate a medicine by how many phone calls I get from the patients. <laughs> and I just don't get a lot of phone calls on these medicines. The, the main phone calls have to do with Giving, getting it covered by insurance, it's expensive. So these are out of pocket about $6,900 a year, uh, which, you know, is a pricey number. How can insurance not cover this? Well, life is complicated. So most oh. of the insurance companies have sort of uh, fallen into this sort of practice where you have to fail a couple of the older oral ones, which is not unreasonable since, again, these new ones work just about as well as they did. Those are, in some cases super cheap propranolol which is an old migraine preventive is very inexpensive so and um you know it depends so private payer insurance versus if you're on medicare or medicaid versus if you're self-paid there are different ways though i will say that i've been able to get in all those different sort of situations i've been able to get the medication coverage covered by different either safety net programs or programs through the uh, pharmaceutical industry or, or others Oh, that, uh, that all sounds good. So finally, some really good news for migraine sufferers. New drugs designed specifically to prevent migraine headaches. We've been talking with neurologist and the division chair of neurology education at Mayo Clinic, headache expert, Dr. Chris Bays. Dr. Bays, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Almost everyone has heard of ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. It makes people think of kids who have trouble paying attention or who are hyperactive or impulsive. But it's not just a problem for kids. About 4 to 5% of U.S. adults have it, and that's about 8 million people. I identify very strongly with this topic, let's just say. Here's the problem. Not many adults, less than 20%, get diagnosed or treated for it. And that's unfortunate because in addition to causing trouble in your daily life, your work, and your relationships, ADHD can cut an estimated eight years or more off of your life expectancy. Surprising. Really shocking. Mm -hmm. To learn more about adult ADHD is... uh, 
family medicine physician and ADHD expert, Dr. Bob Wilford. Welcome to the program, Dr. Wilford. It's nice to meet you. It's nice to be here. Thank you for having me. You know, Dr. Wilford, I would say that most people, including myself, are sort of surprised to know that one out of 20 adults in this country has ADHD. It's not the kind of thing that you talk about when you're meeting your friends for lunch, though, is it? And you, Dr. Shives, are a successful man. I'm suspicious that perhaps ADHD doesn't show itself very commonly in in the circles in which you run. And so uh, unless it's something that we look for and seek out, it's pretty easy to miss. No kidding. Well, does everybody who has uh, is diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, have did they have it as a kid? By definition. So ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. A person who suffers from that distractibility, that impulsivity, was born that way. It's not a behavioral choice. It's not a result of their parenting. It's not a result of any habits that they might have grown up with. So uh, they came out of the womb with ADHD, and it's been with them 24-7 since. There are some adults who from time to time feel distractible. And of course, there's so many things that go on in our lives or other medical problems that sometimes we forget the name to somebody that we meet in the hallway or miss an appointment or fail to complete an obligation on time. It's not always ADHD because of the way our lives are chaotic. But there are a certain number of kids who actually outgrow ADHD, right? Uh, And do not have it as an adult or no? Not nearly as many as was once thought. It had been told to parents for a long time that, oh, Johnny's having trouble in fourth grade, but he'll be a great adult. And he probably was, but he's probably a great adult with ADHD. So what happens is the hyperactivity that those kindergarten teachers are dealing with uh, tends to fade away with time. It takes a lot of energy to be hyperactive. And as a guy in his 40s, I I can't maintain that, right? But the impulsivity and the ups and downs of emotional dysregulation persist. So I might not fidget as an adult, but I might not finish the bathroom remodeling project that I started six months ago either. You just uh, learn how to kind of work around the ADHD that you have and grow up learning tricks and tips on how to get around them? Or you don't, and your bathroom goes unfinished. So it's estimated that one out of seven or one out of eight children truly outgrow the condition. They're able to learn sufficient coping mechanisms that as an adult, no symptom would be discoverable. But that means six or seven out of those seven or eight continue to have symptoms that are discoverable in adulthood. And for many of them, they find ways to cope. They're good at using post-it notes and trapper keepers, or they marry someone who's a little OCD, and that kind of helps them out a little bit. <laughs> Counterbalances it. Huh? But, but for many, they don't find that way. And so it won't be hard if you think of that mental Rolodex you have to uh, think of acquaintances or family members who bounce from job to job um, after six months at a new place, just as most of us would be kind of getting into a rhythm of the workplace they're bouncing out. It just didn't work out for them. Um, when we used to think that it was 50, per, 50 or 60 percent of kids who outgrew ADHD, ADHD, you're saying that's not true at all. It's not true at all. So are the symptoms the same? And, and why is it important for these people to get help? Yeah. Uh, the symptoms do change. The hyperactivity fades with time. 
impulsivity, emotional dysregulation persists. When adults with ADHD are asked what bothers them about their pattern of thought, what they say is emotional dysregulation, a tendency to feel very sensitive to any possible slight from another person, is enough to make what had been a great hour feel crushing for 15 minutes. And then they're mm. better again. And so sometimes a person might come into the office and say, oh, my girlfriend thinks I'm bipolar. And it's not that. It's that their emotions bounce. Uh, so emotional dysregulation is, is a prominent symptom in adults. The other symptom we hear quite a lot is trouble sleeping. Because if you have ADHD, you have it 24-7 even when you're asleep. And so a person who feels physically tired, but their thoughts are bouncing from thing to thing at night, not racing, it's not fast, but their thoughts that seem disjointed uh, might have ADHD at bedtime. So they're awake at two in the morning wishing they could be asleep. Finally, they're so exhausted they sleep the sleep of the dead at four and five, but then the alarm clock goes off and they're wrecked and they can't get their shoes on and get out to meet the bus in the morning. So is it, I had never heard that ADHD can cut life expectancy. <clears throat> it's striking, isn't it? So that data is relatively new. Just last fall, some researchers based in Milwaukee came out with data that uh, used life insurance claims to find that out. These are researchers who had identified children with ADHD back in the 1970s and followed them till the current date. And a child who quote-unquote, outgrew it or thought they had, received treatment as a child but not into an adulthood, would lose perhaps seven years of life wow. be because that, that, that stunting of development, that loss of tips and tricks persisted throughout adulthood. A person who never got treatment, whether an adult or a kid, might have lost 13 years of life. It is a huge impact. And if you think about it, part of that's because they're stressed from being unsuccessful. Right. They seek coping in alcohol or smoking or other bad choices. Or maybe they have diabetes later in life, and you both know mm -hmm. diabetes is picky. It's a burden. You have to test yourself and change doses and four times a day this and that. And if you have ADHD, you're not good at that kind of complexity. And so caring for yourself later in life is difficult. Is adult ADHD a relatively easy diagnosis for you to make in the office, or does it require psychological testing? It would be lovely if, if there were enough psychological testers in the world to allow everybody to have that kind of diagnostic evaluation. Unfortunately, there isn't. And so what most of us do is, over a series of office visits, ask about a person's current function, their other diseases. So... Perhaps maybe they're not paying attention because their asthma is so bad they're working to breathe. We ask about their other mental health conditions. ADHD is a snowball. If you've been ineffective your whole life, you tend to feel bad about it, and so it sort of collects anxiety and depressive symptoms as well. But then we also ask you to remember back in childhood. Remember, it's a neurodevelopmental problem you had since infancy, and so some symptoms should have been present in early childhood. If there really wasn't, then it's not ADHD. The trouble arises is that many people in the 1940s and 50s and 60s didn't know about the condition. And they assumed, oh, Johnny's just a boy, or um, 
Mary mm-hmm. sits still, look pretty, and and their inattention, their hyperactivity wasn't named back then. They're, so it's important to find out um, because it can have such a major effect on your life. But tell us about treatment. We don't have a lot of time to go into the specifics, but how successful is it? Uh, surprisingly successful. It's probably the easiest neuropsychiatric condition to successfully treat. With medication? Um, so I believe because it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, we, we all need this vitamin-like substance called dopamine in a certain part of our brains, and there's a, some very inexpensive, easy-to-use medicines that put dopamine there. There are non-medication ways to address the symptoms to counseling, those post-it notes, exercise, good nutrition, the things that make all of us feel better also helps a person with ADHD. But there are stimulant and non-stimulant, uncontrolled, inexpensive medicines that well address these symptoms. Well, that's so good to hear. Well, it's a problem that affects some 8 million adults in the United States. ADHD, it's not just for kids. As we've just heard, there are a lot of good reasons to find out if you might be one of those who suffers with ADHD as an adult. We've been talking with an adult ADHD expert, Mayo Clinic family physician, Dr. Bob Wilford. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Wilford. Thanks very much. And that's our program for this week. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice. And you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.